I am um, going to be talking uh, to this topic, Darkness in the City of Angels, Evil as a Theme, Vice as a Fact, in the entertainment industry. And I'm using entertainment industry here rather broadly, so I don't just mean the Hollywood-based uh, film industry, I mean television as well. So that's kind of on both coasts, really, because uh, the cable uh, channels, uh, the major news networks and commentary networks have very significant representation, obviously, on the East Coast. So I suppose I'm talking about cultural phenomena on the coasts, but not exclusively on the coasts, but largely on the coasts. Um, and uh, want to try to um, uh, introduce uh, an element of philosophical thinking uh, about some of these matters. I think when we first, uh, has he gone? Oh, there he is, yeah. Patrick, I think when we first discussed the idea that I might give a talk, I, I think originally this was probably going to be a smaller and private affair, and then I think I was going to talk about maybe evil as a, as a general theme. But uh, in the interim, uh, the explosions happened that are going on happening uh, here and elsewhere uh, over the revelations of one kind or another. And so it seemed sensible, uh, actually, to engage those. And um, well, I'll come to this later on. It seems to me up to this point, the commentary uh, on these matters has generally been rather poor. Um, and... Part of that, I think, uh, the reason for that is that actually people find it very difficult to come to terms with the reality that is being revealed. And I'll say why I think that, that difficulty is being felt. So um, <clears throat> this is a talk in two parts. And I'm going to rely on Patrick to put up his hand when it's time for me to, to stop, or nearly to stop. It's in two parts. Now, ordinarily, uh, when an academic writes uh, a book or an essay or something of that sort, and they think about things in two parts, then they're thinking really in terms of something like two chapters or two sections of a piece of writing. So there's a kind of sequence that begins, so to speak, at the top and then proceeds to the bottom of the page and then continues and so on. But I'd like you this evening uh, to think of these two parts more like two panels of a diptych, you know, a, a kind of hinged painting that has these two wings to it, these two parts to it. And I think actually it will be uh, more helpful to think in terms of that. So it's not that I'm going to talk about one thing and then make a connection to a second thing. I want you actually to think about two sets of images developing on two panels that are hinged and connected in this way. So I'm really going to start by describing the left-hand panel, and then we're going to move to the right-hand panel. And what we'll see, which is indeed traditionally the case with paintings that are diptychs or triptychs, um, is that, in fact, there are certain parallelisms that the artist is observing between the two panels, that um, although they may depict distinct scenes, so for example, in a religious painting, it might be a scene from the Old Testament on the left-hand panel, and then a, a scene from the New Testament. On the right-hand panel, the viewer is invited to see in the conjoining of these um, certain uh, analogies or parallels that are being drawn between what's seen on the left-hand panel and what's seen on the right-hand panel. So I want you to think in those terms. So my left-hand panel is um, evil as a theme, and my right-hand panel is vice as a fact. Okay? And the, the, the sort of the hinge um, that links them together, that holds them together, is going to be um, something to do with human nature and human character. So that's really the key to this. The key is going to be that understanding the treatment of evil as a theme in film and understanding vice as a fact in the industry, uh, the key to these is understanding something about human nature and human character. So, um, <clears throat> evil is a theme. Now, um, philosophers and theologians uh, historically have distinguished between two kinds of evils. 
Uh, on the one hand, what they would call natural evils, and the other hand, moral evils. So natural evils, you can think about those states or conditions that in some way are injurious, that cause suffering to those who are involved. So obviously something like disease might be a natural evil, plague might be a natural evil, and so on. So these are all threats to the human good, perhaps not just to the human good, maybe to the good of other animals, but certainly they're threats to the good uh, that come from facts of nature or circumstances obtaining, as I say, obtaining in nature. They may be um, of various sorts. Now, uh, the film industry has actually uh, rather liked natural evils, so it doesn't usually use that terminology. So just think of all those films. Um, really, I mean, the, 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 this genre really sort of uh, begins to take off in the late 1950s and early 60s, partly because of um, techniques developing in, in uh, filmmaking and so on that, that make sort of effects uh, uh, easier to manage. But, you know, films in which earthquakes feature, floods feature, volcanoes feature, viruses feature, and then, more recently, asteroids, comets, and global warming. So all of these can be thought of as kind of natural evils. All of these pose a threat uh, to human welfare or the welfare of other beings on the surface of the Earth. And um, the treatment of those actually is rather classical. It sees these threats to the human good as occasions or opportunities for heroism. So if you think about all those films, you know, in which the Earth breaks open or the volcanoes uh, erupt and uh, the earthquakes happen and the floods happen, the asteroids head towards us and such like, all of these really uh, are opportunities for characters to exhibit heroic virtue. And typically, uh, they'll be successful in their efforts, but even if they're not successful in them, there is a kind of nobility in their heroic defeat. So these films are not really treatments of evil at all. They're actually treatments of good. They're treatments of the heroism of the characters, right? the virtue of the character. So insofar as the film industry has really had anything to say about natural evils, it's really been more to say something about the capacity of human beings to respond to various kinds of dangers and threats. Now, uh, if we turn to um, uh, moral evil, uh, evil to do with human motivations, human actions, and so on, um, then in this case, uh, the, the challenge uh, for the film industry is to try to give some sort of account of what's involved in moral evil. So let me just... Ah, what happened here? Let me see. I hope this isn't as... Oh, hang on a second. It tells me bad requests, syntax, or unsupported. But hang on a second, let's see what I'm saying. Yeah, so um, here's a theme um, in literature, but also a theme taken up in film, and uh, it's uh, various treatments over the years of Conrad's um, novel, uh, Heart of Darkness. So I imagine that many of you will read that, have read that, but for those who haven't, very basically, it, it, or simply I should say, it's concerned with um, the Belgian Congo and um, Belgium's desire, first of all, to have an empire rather late in the day in terms of building European empires, but the kind of brutalism that's involved in that. And... Um, the Heart of Darkness is a kind of pun in a way because um, the, uh, the hero, if that's how we should describe him, makes his way into the Belgian Congo, up the river and so on. So in a sense, he's proceeding towards the Heart of Darkness. And of course, Africa was thought of as being the dark continent because of the color of the skin of the people. So there's all that play with the idea of a dark continent proceeding to the heart of darkness and so on. But Conrad's sort of inversion of this is that it turns out that the real darkness, the moral darkness, is in the heart 
of the white-skinned colonials and exploiters. So really, it's about the darkness of heart, right? It's, a, it's a, in one sense, a, an exploration of the heart of darkness, but it's really more morally speaking an exploration of the darkness of the human heart. Now, interestingly, this has attracted um, filmmakers over the years, and um, actually that seems to have leapt a bit. Yeah, hang on a second. Right, okay. Um, uh, and it's quite interesting, actually, also, if you look at the posters uh, and advertising for various versions of this, uh, filming treatments of this, uh, quite how they represent it. So uh, here on the right-hand side from a later film, we have the jungle offers incredible, whatever it offers, I don't know, but its price can be death. But I think the one on the left-hand side is much closer to um, Conrad's intent, which is evil dwell dwells in the heart of man. And this, I think, is actually one of the more successful but relatively few explorations of the darkness of the human heart, I think. Um, here is uh, uh, another poster for the John Markovich uh, version of this, Heart of Darkness. But notice here on the right-hand side, we're transitioning into um, what was an adaptation of those themes, which was um, Apocalypse Now. So Hearts of Darkness was a film about the making uh, of that film and themes deriving from it. And uh, <coughs> there we are, poster for, the, for a full uh, director's version of the film. But notice here, for example, oh, you can't really see this terribly well, but anyway, there's a representation of human faces in some of which they're sort of half animalistic. So there's a sense of, kind of, a sense of sort of reversion to some more primitive condition that somehow when people got away from um, the sort of whited cities of Western civilization, then uh, their true barbarism began to reveal itself and there's a sort of reversion to animal character. And then... Uh, this is from Apocalypse Now. We've got the theme of a kind of crazed, insane uh, character. And uh, one interesting issue there is the beginning of the medicalization of evil, the idea that really if somebody's bad, it's probably because they're mad. Um, so it's really an unwillingness to contemplate badness as such and a desire to actually treat it as something else. Um, <coughs> this character... Uh, sorry, this is a scene from the film The Ninth Configuration, um, which is an exploration of insanity um, and a very interesting film. <coughs> Excuse me, the character, the, the man who plays the doctor here on the right-hand side, and there's actually a rather complex, if anybody's seen this film, rather complex inversion <coughs> of who's doctor and who's patient. But the individual who's playing the doctor here is William Blatty, um, a novelist, and some of you may know um, him, a rather famous uh, film, um, which based on a novel of his, and also he wrote the screenplay, The Exorcist, uh, which is one of the most famous treatments, you might think, of evil uh, in, um, in Hollywood uh, filmmaking. I, um, I wrote a book some years ago called An Intelligent Person's Guide to Religion, in which I have a chapter, chapter on evil. And... Um, through some uh, intermediary figure, uh, Blatty was given or acquired a copy of that book, read the chapter on evil, and then asked if he could meet with me. Uh, he knew I was in the United States at the time. And uh, he, he asked if I would come and visit him in his Maryland home. And as you can see there, uh, it's surrounded by sort of memorabilia uh, of various films and so on. He's a, he was a rather strange uh, man, but an interesting character. He was quite keen to be seen in this sort of pensive, reflective <laughs> pose here. And then um, 
there. He was uh, angry about various things to do with the film industry, I may say, ideas of his that he felt had been robbed in one thing or another, which was probably true. Um, but we had a very long and very interesting conversation about um, what The Exorcist is really, is really about. Now, here's a photograph of Blatty um, in earlier days. And uh, running up on this side here, you can see a set of steps. And then those set of steps are portrayed here in this photograph on the right-hand side. I'm sure that some of you recognize those steps. People know what those steps are? Can somebody tell me what they are? Georgetown. Yes, Georgetown, yeah. But they're, they're known as the... I feel like this is a classroom now, actually. <laughs> there are going to be rewards, honestly. Uh, they're known as the exorcist steps. And uh, how it was that Blatty got interested in the chapter of the book that I'd written was this, that I was at Georgetown on 9-11, and uh, my practice, I, I had a position there then, and my practice was in the morning that I would go on to uh, the BBC News on the internet, and um, I was reading the BBC News, and it was reporting these attacks in New York and Washington. At that point, also, there was a belief that Washington was directly itself under attack or about to be, and as you know, there was some basis for that. But anyway, and um, it was rather extraordinary, and I realized that the, the place had fallen silent. And um, Georgetown uh, is generally at that time in the morning when you're not hearing other sounds, you hear the kind of roar of aircraft overhead because there's the National Airport and there's also Dulles and so on. But the place had fallen silent, and I looked out of the window, and then there was a roar of an F 111 passing over. But anyway, we're I was told that I had to get out of the building, and so I made my way down, because I lived in Arlington across the Potomac River, and um, made my way down these steps. Uh, and as I got to the bottom and then went onto the Key Bridge, I uh, was just struck by the fact, the sort of filmic quality of this. I mean, just people pouring out of Georgetown, making their way across the Key Bridge. Um, and then looking to the left and see smoke rising from the Pentagon, which had been hit at that point. And uh, anyway, so I, I was reflecting on these, and um, one aspect of these steps, which I think is interesting, I mean, one of the characters in this falls out of a window and is killed coming down those steps, but also they are themselves a kind of descent. And so the whole theme of the idea of a descent into evil, uh, a falling down, uh, is one that I think that um, Blatty was alert to. Anyway, he, uh, as you know very famously, this film, uh, one um, British... Film critic Kerr Mode has written more than one book on this um, and argues that this is the best film that has ever been made. He actually thinks that The Exorcist is the best film that has ever been made. Now, I find that an exaggeration, but it's rather interesting uh, why one might think that. Um, for reasons of time, I'm not going to sort of, I'm afraid, be able to develop this very far, but basically, uh, why Blatty wanted to see me was that he wanted, uh, and before uh, we would meet, he said, I want you to read another book of mine called Legion, and he sent me a copy of it. Legion, of course, is a reference to <coughs> a passage in Scripture where um, uh, a demon is being exercised, and, and it's, Jesus calls on it to give its name, and he, it says, you know, I am Legion, I am many. So the suggestion is this is not a single spirit, but many spirits. And as it turns out, uh, here's basically the story of The Exorcist. The, story, the Exorcist is not about demonic possession. Um, what it's about is an ancient myth, um, a Babylonian Near Eastern myth that gets drawn into Judeo-Christianity, which is that, the, um, that Lucifer, the angel of light, um, 
was created as angels are to love God and had no option in the matter, but wanted to love God out of his own will. So he didn't want to simply be out of his nature. He wanted actually to choose to love God. And so he said to God, um, what can I do that would allow me to, um, to be able to love you out of my own volition, out of my own choice? And God said, well, your nature doesn't allow for that, so you'd have to change your nature, and that's not something you could do. And so uh, Lucifer says, well, was there anything you can do about it? And he says, well, it would be extremely painful. And uh, Lucifer says, no, I want to. I'm so committed to this project <laughs> that I'm willing to face that. And so there's a tremendous explosion and agonizing pain. And that turns out to be the creation of the universe. And Lucifer is fragmented into millions and millions of particles. And um, the history of the universe is the history of those particles coming back together again to form, uh, well, I mean, to form molecules and so on. And then those molecules to form, cells, to form cells and those cells to form bodies and so on. And so Blatty has, Blatty's idea is this, that the Suffering that we encounter in the world and the moral evil that's to be encountered in the world is a result of this cosmic struggle of this spirit to reintegrate itself into a single entity in order that it should be able to love God. And we are that spirit in its parts, right? We are sort of fragmented, broken pieces. And this is why we are both attracted to one another but also repelled by one another in various ways. And uh, so there's a kind of... Um, gravitational pull, or there's a kind of magnetic attraction and repulsion going on uh, in the world, and that is, uh, on Blatty's account, this is an explanation of what we think of as being evil. Now, you might think of this as a rather fanciful story. I don't want to try to assess that now. But what is interesting about it, I think, is its profundity and depth, in a way. It's a philosophical, it's an attempt, philosophically speaking, to understand evil. And this, the second of the Exorcist films he sold the, the franchise title, and so the sec he had no control over the second of the films, but he did the third of the films that was based on Legion. And if you haven't seen on his novel Legion, if you haven't seen it, it's very interesting. Now, I'd like to talk more about that, but I'm not going to, so I'm going to leap on. That's me and Blatty. And so this is the book Legion. If you haven't read it, I'd recommend it. And there's Lucifer falling to earth. And as I say, uh, this is interesting. This is one of my children with, <laughs> with Blatty. And uh, I know this is slightly cliched, but he said, I'd like you to, he said to her, Kirsty, I'd like you to hold this Oscar, uh, which he'd got, I think, for the Pink Panther, one of the Pink Panther films, not for, um, not for The Exorcist. And he said, I'd like you to hold that. And, I said, and he said to me, I'd like you to take a photograph of me and your daughter with her holding that. And then he said, and this is what he said, it's a metaphor for Hollywood, gold-plated, but base metal beneath the gilding. Um, now, there's some truth in that, though it does have a slight touch of the Christmas cracker sort of about it, but nonetheless, there's some truth in it. Now, so now I'm moving to part two, or the, the right-hand side of the diptych. So I've spoken very briefly, I know, about the, the way in which uh, cinema has represented or failed to investigate perhaps the nature of evil. Now I want to talk about um, the darkness in the heart of the entertainment industry, right? Not the heart of darkness, but the darkness in the heart. I'm using Conrad's kind of um, clever play with the location of the heart and the location of darkness. Um, so now we move to this second theme. Um, and, and I should just sort of, as an intermediary to this, say one thing that I didn't, which was that the... Um, I talked about the way in which uh, Hollywood has dealt with natural evil as providing the occasion for heroism, so it's not really an investigation of evil as such. 
Its treatment of moral evil, for the most part, is somewhat superficial, though I've given an example of what seems to me profundity, um, though the heart of darkness treatments, I think some of those are also rather profound. Um, but there is a third kind of evil with which uh, Hollywood is interested, and that's um, what I'll just call transnatural evil. Now, tra by transnatural evil, I'm really bringing together two ideas which ought to be kept apart, and Hollywood has not managed to keep them apart because I don't think it just understands that they are two distinct ideas. One is the idea of the preternatural, that's to say what's beyond nature. And one version of the preternatural is the monstrous. So in classical antiquity in the ancient world and all the way through the medieval world and so on, people were interested in monsters. They were interested in monsters because in one way or another, they are sort of transgressive of the nature of the thing in question. So the monstrous human being, I mean the, the physically grotesque or whatever else it may be, or the fantastical creature. These all, in some way or another, sort of go beyond nature, partly by, as well by tra transgressing it. And that's, if you like, the notion, notion of the horrific or the spooky or the horrible or whatever it may be. And um, part of the difficulty that uh, Blatty experienced was he couldn't, he struggled to get Hollywood to take seriously the idea that he wasn't exploring the preternatural, he was exploring some other kind of beyond the natural, and that was the supernatural. So these two kind of transnaturals are distinct. The, the preternatural is what's beyond nature in the sense that it either transgresses it or it's something that nature couldn't achieve, it's something spooky, it's something strange. Uh, but the supernatural pertains to evil and grace. So the supernatural it relates to the life of grace in the soul. And uh, the supernatural is the business of religion. The preternatural is not the business of religion, it's the business of fiction and the imagination. But the supernatural, in this sense, is properly speaking the business of religion. And you might say that um, Blatty's struggle was to persuade people in Hollywood to take the exorcist seriously, not as a treatment of the preternatural, but as a treatment of the supernatural. Not as a treatment of the spooky and the weird and the transgressive, but actually as an exploration of the human soul. And uh, he had his battles with the director at the time, but he got somewhere with that. He got further in Legion, and so I, I recommend that you see Legion. So, uh, having uh, picked up on that theme, let me now talk about the, the darkness of heart. And this brings us the idea of vice as a reality. Now, um, really, Blatty's theme was, as I said, a kind of fragmentation and disintegration and what one does to try to sort of reintegrate oneself or bring oneself together into some kind of wholeness. That's what's going on. And the thrashing about of the characters seemingly possessed of demons and so on, are not, there aren't demons in them. What there is in them is um, a deep and profound frustration at their own lack of integrity and unity and so on. They're fighting themselves, as it were. Right? They, they don't have a kind of principle of unity within them, and they're seeking one. But leaving that aside as a, as a treatment of... The supernatural, I just want to talk about this as an aspect of the human, I mean, in the ordinary sense of the human. Um, the route to wholeness is, the ancient philosophers teach us, uh, and Christianity teaches us, uh, through self-knowledge and also through self-rectification. That's to say, understanding our brokenness, um, understanding our fragmented natures, however whatever the explanation of that fragmented, fragmentedness is, and uh, doing something about it. So are these kind of two moments, you might say, in the spiritual life. I mean, the first one is self-knowledge, and the second one is self-rectification. 
So in the uh, Western, uh, you find this in Eastern religious traditions as well, but for these purposes, I'll just restrict myself to the Western traditions. In the Western traditions, uh, from the early fathers, desert fathers, all the way through, you find a kind of taxonomy, a classification of phases of the spiritual life. And the general consensus is that this falls into three phases. So the first phase is the purgative phase, and this is where you kind of free yourself of certain desires or you overcome certain desires. This is where you clean yourself out, spiritually speaking. Um, and then the second phase is the illuminative phase. So having, as it were, got rid of the dirt and got rid of the, the twists and the turns in the heart and in the soul and so on, straightened yourself out in that respect, then you're in a position, but only then are you in a position to be illuminated, uh, to, as it were, come to understand things, because you were so twisted and turned before that, as it were, the light couldn't get through. Um, and so the second phase is illumination, and the third phase is unification. That's coming into some kind of unity with God, and that's a, that is, as it were, the the ultimate stage of the spiritual life, and that is what uh, beatification, post-mortem, provides to the saints, which is some partnership or sharing in the life of God. But let's just think about the first of those phases, the purgative phase. So in order to have an effective, as it were, purgation of the soul and of the heart, um, it's necessary, first of all, that you know that you're diseased, you know that you have these problems or these difficulties. I mean, whether we use the language of illness or disease or whatever else it may be, or um, kind of moral corruption, whatever, however you want to describe this, what we have to recognize is that these facts about ourselves. And then the second thing we have to do is to try to kind of find the resources, whether naturally or supernaturally, by our own effort or through God's help, uh, to try to um, put this right in some way. Now, um, what I think one understands through this is that how one acts, how one lives, how one behaves, uh, is a manifestation or expression of, of one's nature, what one is. And uh, it's actually very difficult to conceal your nature. Um, people work at it, of course, but um, it will show itself. Uh, and so the manifestation of one's, of one's character and so on is very important, and that's why it's very important that one understand what one is oneself doing, right? To actually be able to analyze one's own behavior and see what it is a manifestation of. Now, this brings me to a theme in Christian writings, and I'll just mention one important figure in this, which is St. Augustine. Um, Augustine came to Christianity through all sorts of struggles in his own life and uncertainties and so on, um, but he came to Christianity and... Uh, one of the sort of keys for Augustine to understanding why Christianity was true was that he thought that Christianity provided a diagnosis of facts about the human condition that any reflective and sensible or sensitive, perhaps, person is aware of. And uh, he put this by saying that um, sin, which is a kind of disobedience or setting yourself against God, or putting yourself before God, which in one sense is what perhaps Lucifer did, um, that sin as well it has two kinds of effects. One is our supernatural effects, that's to say effects in the life of the soul, that it drains the soul of grace and it, that it, provide, it, it sets up barriers to the reception of grace. So the most profound effect of sin is in the life of the soul. And ultimately uh, it, it can destroy that life. 
But as well as having these spiritual effects, sin has certain natural effects, effects that can be detected um, <clears throat> by ordinary means, as it were. And he thinks there are three kinds, principally. One is he thinks that our minds have become darkened by sin. Uh, second, he thinks that our passions have become disturbed by sin. And thirdly, he thinks that our, will, our wills have become irresolute through sin. So, as a result of sin, both general sin and personal sin, we are less able to understand things, including ourselves. So the task of self-analysis, self-knowledge, and so on, is made harder by sin. Um, we will tend to deceive others, but worse than that, in a sense, we'll deceive ourselves. So there's a failure of knowledge. And remember, self-knowledge is the prerequisite for rectification. If you don't understand yourself, then you're not really in a position to start to put things right. And one of the effects of sin is to impede the possibilities of knowledge. It darkens the intellect. The second is that it disturbs the passions. That the passions, that in and of themselves, desire is not wrong. I mean, the mistake of the Puritans is to try to, to sort of see desire as a kind of source of sin because desire is somehow in itself bad. No, desire is not bad, but it has to be proportioned to the suitability of its object, right? You have to desire in the right way for the right things. And what happens as a result of sin is you stop desiring in the right way, and you stop desiring for the right things. And then thirdly, the effect of sin is that um, even when you understand things and even when you get your desire kind of in order, you just have weakness of will. You're unable to do what you know you ought to do, or you do what you know you ought not to do. And so these features are absolutely <coughs> central to understanding the human condition. Now I turn to... Uh, the entertainment industry. Because it seems to me what is conspicuously the case is that it exhibits defects of each of these three sorts, right? That, that, that both, that, and I, when I say the entertainment industry, I'm, I'm using entertainment rather broadly here. I mean, I, I'm including um, news and commentary and so on, but I mean, the kind of thing that is getting into people's uh, lives and into their minds through television, cinema, and so on. Um, from filmmakers and uh, from the media, uh, I mean, what you might call the higher media, the people who think of themselves as kind of providing a sort of insight and such like. And um, what I think, if you start to look at this, is an inability to think straight, right? that people actually have corrupt minds. That there's a kind of want of, a lack of due conscience, um, and there's this kind of pervasive self-deception. So, for example, in some of the exposures in recent times of the inappropriate behavior of various people, there's um, this kind of witless, infantile denial of the obvious, you know, for people to say things like, you know, I just don't see how this is possible. I knew him all the way through. Or, uh, or another aspect of this, which I'll come to in a second, is to say that this is really about power or uh, to medicalize it, you know, to say, look, I've obviously got some kind of compulsion that I need help with, you know. It's to, cast, it's to re reorient yourself away from being a perpetrator to be a victim. And that's an infantile response. When you're caught out in doing something wrong, then just face up to it, right? Don't start to treat yourself as if you are yourself the victim of some kind of compulsion that needs... Uh, I mean, people may, may need help, but they don't need help because they're victims in all of this. They need help because they're perpetrators. Um, but another aspect of this is the kind of unreasoned pursuit of gratification and the instrumentalization of others and objectification of others. 
Um, and thirdly, corresponding to the irresolution of the will is a kind of lack of control, an inability to rein in um, or to reorient one's life. Um, one becomes wanton, as it were, right? just, just as kind of slave to your desires without the ability to form higher order desires, to desire not to desire that kind of thing. So people are kind of infantilized um, by their celebration, in part, and by their success. And so I just want to end by pointing to two things that I think are particularly significant in what's going on just now. I mean, in the response to what's going on just now. One is the uh, inability to discriminate between different kinds of vice and gravity of action. And I think that um, it's a mark of people's lack of judgment and indeed lack of courage, that they're unwilling to start to sort of draw distinctions. That will happen, but it hasn't happened yet. But the second thing which I think is a mark of serious kind of corruption of mind is this, the idea that what this is about is power, right? That this isn't about sex, it's about power. Now, it seems to me that is being said, I think, for two reasons. <coughs> One is <coughs> it plays into a certain, well, they're both political reasons. One is it plays into a certain narrative that there really isn't such a thing as, as a really, as it were, wrongdoing in human heart. Um, <clears throat> what it is is that some people get into positions in which they exercise power over others. Now, of course, there are people who desire power for, for its own sake, and that's a form of corruption. But most of what we're seeing, people are using power as an instrument to get something else that they want, which is typically sexual. Right? These are not... I mean, there are abuses of power, but that doesn't, <clears throat> that's not, as it were, the beginning and end of it. The beginning of it is a kind of um, <clears throat> an, an incapacity or an unwillingness to actually order their desires appropriately. So they're using power, just as in other circumstances people have used money, uh, for gratification. And I think that it's, it, um, it's not just that, as well, this is false. I think it's kind of willfully false. Because if you see this as being a matter of power, then if you think we just do something to change power relations, then this problem will go away. If the power relations were different, um, let's just say if the position of women in society were different, for example, or the position of men in some ways was constrained and such like, then these issues wouldn't arise. Whereas if I'm right, and I think if Conrad was right, and if Blatty's right, and if Augustine are right, and so on, all of this speaks to something much more profound. What it speaks to, as I said, I think is um, a darkened intellect, uh, disturbed passions, and a resolution of the will. And what I see no evidence of is, uh, yet, is a willingness to use the great gifts um, uh, of the imagination, uh, of screenplay, of acting, of presentation, and so on, to actually engage in serious, as it were, spiritual explorations. I don't necessarily mean religious ones, but serious spiritual explorations of the of the human heart, of the sort that Conrad in one way was concerned with and Augustine in another way was concerned with. So I think at that point, where's Patrick? I'm going to, he's disappeared. I'm going to stop now and we can have some discussion. Is that all right? Sure, yeah. Okay, good, thank you. <laughs> Sorry? Okay, <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Who's, who's it? Yes. Hi. Um, so you said there's three kinds of evils, essentially. Yeah. Right? You said there's the pre preternatural, supernatural, and transnational. Now, um, it, now, let me just do that slightly differently, just so that we're, everybody's sort of clear. So I was saying there's kind of three sorts of evil that people have tended to be interested in. There are natural evils. Those are the kind of threats to human welfare that are represent, or other animal welfare represented by natural disasters, disease, illness, all that sort of thing. Then there are moral evils. 
And these are where the, the evils of wrongdoing and ill intention and all that sort of thing, evils of character, as it were. And then there's a third kind of evil, what I called transnatural evils, okay? And then I said that, that notion of transnatural evil, I mean, I've just introduced the term transnatural, really to bring together two things that I think need to be understood, but also to be understood as being distinct. One is the preternatural, that's as it were the transgressive or the monstrous in some way or another. And Hollywood has been very interested in that, right? There's a whole genre of that of one kind or another, right? Monster films in both a literal sense, but also monstrous human beings in some kind of deformed sense of human beings. Um, but the other kind of, of this third category of this tra <coughs> transnatural evil is supernatural evil. And supernatural evil isn't to do with the monstrous uh, in the first sense. It's to do with the soul, right? It's to do with um, those things in our lives that pertain to our salvation or our damnation, right? That p pertain to our eternal life. And um, ultimately, I would say that's the most important kind of evil, right? Uh, that, that goes beyond every other kind of evil. But at any rate, um, what I was saying was that interestingly, Blatty was himself engaged with the question of supernatural, life as a spirit and salvation and so on. But he thought that his view, which probably is implausible, but anyway, his view was that what people call the preternatural in the sense of the demonic or something of that sort, this scary, weird sort of thing, is really to be understood in terms of the spiritual malformation or disturbance that is deep within us. Now, I, I cited that just to say that, you know, to give Blatty as an example of a certain degree of profundity in the exploration of evil. But I was using it then to move on from the Blatty treatment to say that this is something that really needs to be understood in human life, right? This is the most fundamental thing to be understood about ourselves. The way in which interiorly, but then in consequence in manifested in behavior, we are or are not spiritually oriented towards our deepest good or our gravest harm, right? So it's the treatment of the spiritual evil. And I think that Conrad, in one way, in some of those films, were trying to explore that. The, typically, um, films didn't, treat, uh, didn't really see into the depths of this. But that was the thing I was talking about. Now, does that help? Yes. And uh, uh, so um, the supernatural evil would be like the demons and angels, et cetera. Is there such a thing? Is that correct, by the way? Um, or is that the preternatural? That's really the preternatural, oh, okay. yeah, yeah. So supernatural would be more in our souls? Yes, exactly, exactly, precisely, yeah, yeah. Okay. So if you take something like Dan Brown, for example, and Angels and Demons and all of that, I mean, of course, that's, he's going off in a completely different direction, but that's kind of the spooky or the strange or whatever else it may be. But that's superficial stuff, right? Just like, in a sense, the monstrous is superficial, right? What's What the deep stuff is, not the not the uh, preternatural, not the weird, not the strange, not the transgressive, but the other thing, which is a kind of silent, um, unspoken part in all of this, which is what's going on within us at the deepest possible level. And which you don't need to be religious, I think, or at least you don't need to be avowedly religious to recognize there's something there that is being spoken to. And what Augustine, I was saying, was teaches us or suggests is that when that gets disordered, that interiority, that deepest thing, it manifests itself in three ways. 
One is an inability to understand things that we can understand in some sense or ought to be able to understand. Uh, secondly, is an inability to order our passions, our desires. And thirdly, uh, is a kind of inability to act in accord with what we decide, you know, that we fail to do what we choose, we, ought to, we recognize we ought to do, and we do what we recognize we ought not to do. And it's those three things that I think are the most profound manifestations of disorder. And it's those things that I think both would make terrific themes in some ways for filmmaking, but I think that actually the entertainment industry is a manifestation of disordered spirit because it is so systematically self-deceived, it's systematically disordered in its passions, and it's systematically irresolute in its capacity to actually put things right. And so there will be no improvement, there will be no change until those things are addressed. And that's why I think this talk about power, that you know, this is really just a manifestation of the power of one group or another and so on, is just is self-deception. Right? That if you, just, if you think that, then you think, oh, we just put these power relations right and everything will be okay. No, it won't. Because power here is an instrument for the exercise of a kind of spiritual corruption. That's, that's the suggestion. Is that all right? <coughs> Please, yeah. Um, do you think there is sort of a prerequisite required to be able to strike upon artistic truth? Gosh, <laughs> that's a very profound question, yeah. Well, I thought you were going to say something else. I mean, do I think that, that, that some degree of purgation is required in response to, you know, the scandals of current times and so on? I think the danger here is that what will happen is that there'll be a bit of, you know, so rightly some people who deserve to be as are exposed and, and uh, you know, censured and ostracized and such like. All of that will happen, and that's right. I think there will be a lot of people who will be dragged into that who probably shouldn't have been. Uh, I think that a lot of this will actually be largely cosmetic, um, I don't think it'll go very far. I think we'll be back to normal business pretty quickly. Um, the, but that wasn't the question you were asking, right? You were the question. The question was, well, I do think that. Uh, I mean, this is a really very good question, and, and it's, there's no quick answer to it. But let me suggest a direction of an answer. There's an extremely important distinction to be drawn between imagination and fantasy, right? Uh, I mean, I'm talking, because you asked about a purgation as a prerequisite for creative work, right? I think it's extremely important. There is no good art that is merely fantasy art. Because fantasy is unconstrained, it's unanchored in reality, right? You can just go off and, you know, just go in any direction. And I think that some people make the mistake of confusing imagination with fantasy. Because imagination, in the creative, artistic sense of that, is a kind of constrained exploration of possibilities, right? At the end of the day, as it were, it goes off, but it has to return to the main theme, and the main theme is reality. So imagination is a way, odd though it sounds, paradoxical as it sounds, imagination is a way of exploring reality, right? It's by asking yourself certain sort of counterfactual questions. Well, it isn't like that, but suppose it had been like this, right? Well, it isn't like this, but suppose it had been like that, right? These are ways of kind of look as if you're going away from reality, but actually they're ways of bending back. They're ways of asking questions about reality, you know? And so imagination, I think, is extremely important. Fantasy has no discipline, no responsibility at all, right? Because it isn't constrained. It's not a way of asking about reality. It's a way of just walking away from reality. And sometimes it doesn't matter because it's trivial and one thing or another. But, I mean, I do think that, for example... The, the, the explosion of films in the kind of superhero genre and things of that sort is a mark of cultural corruption. Right? 
I think this is a, a manifestation of America's inability to face a very fundamental question about what is America and what are its values. Because I think this is just retreat into fantasy. Um, and of course, you know, you could say, as some, somebody might say, well, isn't this just the same sort of thing that the Greeks did when they you know, explored the myths of the gods and things of that sort? But actually, typically, the explorations of the myths of the gods and the, and, and the classical myths in general are actually explorations of aspects of human nature. So, for example, you know, to take a, an obvious and familiar one, the myth of Sisyphus, you know, where he's condemned to push the rock to the top of the hill that falls down again and he pushes it back again and so on, <clears throat> isn't fantasy. I mean, of course, it's not real in one sense, but it's an exploration of reality. It's a way of actually asking something about the human condition. Are we really just Sisyphus? Are our lives just like this person who pushes a rock to the top of the hill and it falls down again and he starts again the next day? So is our routine of our lives of working and resting and working and resting really just a Sisyphinian kind of pointless existence? So I think when the <clears throat> authors of antiquity engage in what looks like fantasy, they're actually engaging in imagination. And so in order to be any kind of serious artist, and I take imagination to be one of the core elements of artistry here, is that I think you do have to subject yourself to a certain kind of self-disciplining. And that means purging from yourself. So this is a long-winded answer, but here's the, here is the answer. Purging yourself of the propensity or temptations to fantasy and substituting imagination, so pulling yourself back. I'll just give you an example of a film that I think is profoundly corrupt in this way, and that's Pretty Women. Uh, Pretty Woman, right. Uh, uh, which I think is just a very corrupt film, because I think it is just fantasy, right? It's a, uh, it's a corrupt film, it's a product of a corrupt mind, and it's a corrupting film, because it's a kind of erotic sentimentalism uh, that is, is just is fantasy. Um, and, you know, seriously corrupting of things like personal relationships. And a great deal, of course, of what Hollywood has produced has been in that genre. So, yes, I do think that a certain kind of purgation. Purging yourself of the propensity to fantasy is important for the disciplined work of the imagination in art making. And that's true across the arts. I mean, in the visual arts, for example, one thing that, you know... Uh, well, it's a kind of criticism, in a way, within the visual arts to, to describe work as merely being illustrative of, an, illustrative of an idea as opposed to sort of exploring an idea, right? And the exploration of an idea is, in a sense, the exploration of reality through the imagination. Thank you. So I don't have a, an exact question, but I'm wondering if you could help me explore the connection um, between the two as you mentioned in the beginning, mm. um, through the, I think you said the human, this, human nature is yeah. the key that joins yeah. the hinge that joins the two. Mm. Um, I'm just trying to sort of, um, I guess, join two parts of the talk. Like, how how does the okay. first part sort of illuminate so the, the yeah. second part? Where I guess first part's on evil and the different types of evil, natural and moral. Um, and then the second part's on like particular human vice and the weakness of will, mind, and. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. All right. So really, uh, just to make things clear, what I was saying in the first part, I was assembling some materials in the first part, right? And then talking about certain filmic treatments. I mean, that was curtailed for reasons of time and so on. But what I was interested in was the way in which um, evil has been treated as a theme in filmmaking. And I distinguish these different kinds of evils, right? The monstrous evil, one sort of that sort, right? 
the moral evil, and then, but really the moral evil doesn't get a lot of exploration, but what does is uh, more the, um, what I call the preternatural, the transgressive, the monstrous, that kind of thing. Um, but the suggestion was that if we take somebody like Blatty, I mean, Blatty's a flawed writer, the excess is a flawed film, and so on, but here's, you know, let's sort of forgive the faults, <laughs> as we would want our own faults to be forgiven us, um, and see him as a man who is trying to explore something with which we are all familiar, right? Which is a kind of, at its very lightest, ill at ease, right? We are at the very slightest, this is a bit of an understatement, right? We are ill at ease in various ways. And that illness of ease comes out in our personal relationships, it comes out in our inability to be at ease with ourselves, and the manifestations, or not the manifestations, but evidence of that, I mean, is pervasive when you start to look at the, you know, the, the, the consumption of various forms of mood-altering substances in the United States. I'm not just in the United States. I'm saying this in the United States because I'm here, right? But various kinds of medicated uh, treatments for being at ease in various ways. So I think what he's trying to do is to say, look, there is something about human beings that is... There is a sense in which we're thrashing about. We're kind of self-conflicted. Right? We're not at ease in some way. Why is that? Now, his account of that, you know, I've said what it is, but basically what he's trying to do is he's trying to kind of do a sort of spiritual psychology. Right? He's trying to look into the heart or into the soul of human beings and to see that this kind of surface disturbance is a manifestation of something sort of metaphysically deep about us. And then he's got his story about how, you know, we're the sort of the parts of this fragmented being that's trying to work its way back together again. Well, maybe that's mythic. But often myths are attempts. This is the difference between fantasy and imagination, right? Often myths are ways of trying to state something or show something in a way that is hard otherwise to explain. So what I was... The first part was about, and much more would need to be said about this, but the way in which evil is treated as a theme and ways in which often it's very superficial, Okay. Uh, and, and how it could be deeper. And I, and I think that two examples one would want to look at if this were a kind of you know, day-long session and we were showing bits of films and things of that sort would be the different treatments of Heart of Darkness, of Conrad's Heart of Darkness would be one example. And then the other example might be the, the, the Blatty stuff. So the, the, the hinge here is the idea that a serious engagement with evil has to do what Blatty was trying to do, which was to see into the heart of darkness, to use now the Conradian, right? To try to see what's in there that's producing this. So that then brought me to the second side of things, which is that, you know, currently the entertainment industry is being exposed in various ways. Now, actually, there are other ways in which it could be exposed. Financial corruption, for example, would be one. Inducements and various kinds of things. Blackmailing of people, for, not for reasons to do with sexual impropriety of other kinds of things and so on. And I mean, this is, I'm, you know, this is not just in the film industry, obviously, it's something more pervasive. But what I'm interested in is here's a section of society that is in many ways very powerful. It has the capacity to form and to present to people as a self-image an idea of what they are. And yet this very powerful maker of images, both literal images, but also in some sense conceptual images, is itself exposed as deeply flawed in various ways. Now, what explains those flaws? Well, the same features that explain the flaws in human beings more generally, part one, as it were. But also, I think that the manifestation of, this, of these flawed <laughs> conditions 
is showing itself in the response to what's being revealed. So one way of dealing with this is to fail to make discriminating judgments, right? Because if you're trying to sort of get a serious assessment of what's going on here in human life, you need to start to draw distinctions, right? And nobody's drawing distinctions. The whole thing is just getting bundled together, right? Um, point number one. Secondly, there's a failure, and I think a willful failure, to recognize that this, a lot of this just is about sex. I mean, it's about <laughs> disordered passions, right? It's not that sex is disordered. It's that, as it were, desiring in the wrong way for the wrong person, in the wrong circumstances, under the wrong conditions, and so on, is a manifestation of disordered passion and such like. And people just don't want to face that. And so there are two ways of not facing that. One is to medicalize this. Right, to say, well, this isn't really a fault in the sense, it's not something culpable, it's not something for which I can be held responsible. It's just kind of, you know, I've got some condition, and oh dear, I should have dealt with this, and maybe there are doctors who can help me, right? So that's a kind of self-deception that's involved in that. And of course, it's perpetrating a deception on the victims, because they're saying to, you're saying to the victim, well, you're not really a victim of my wrongdoing, because I wasn't really doing wrong in the first We're both victims in this together. And no doubt they'll be, you know, we'll be getting photographs next of people sharing their victimhood, right? Um, so that's one aspect of it. But the other thing is this idea, as I said, that it's about power. It's not about power. Power is merely the instrument by which we pursue our evil desires. Right? There are some people, very few people, who desire power for its own sake. Almost everyone who desires power desires power because what it enables them to do. Um, and so I think that it's already apparent <laughs> that the corruption of soul or spirit that's present here is much deeper and much more pervasive. Of course, the sexual abuse is a manifestation of that, but it's much more pervasive. And the way in which people deal with the sexual scandal and so on will itself, I think, just be a manifestation of this more pervasive corruption. A question over here and then one over here. Sorry, please. So, uh, so I can't help but think in this lecture, yeah. I've heard a lot of, of speaking about darkness, yeah. terms of spirituality, power, mm. sin, Lucifer, even the mentioning. Well, Lucifer, of course, is a representative of light, but that's something else, yeah. 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 And normally I only ask this question after about 10 therapy sessions. All right, okay. <laughs> but I can't help but ask right away. It's a loaded question. Yeah. And it's also direct, also seemingly off topic, but very much. <laughs> I'm getting nervous now. <laughs> <laughs> getting a powerful lead up. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Do you believe in God? Oh, I see. Well, I thought it was going to be much worse, right? <laughs> I thought you were going to tell me that you've actually, you know, I don't know, you've um, employed a private detective to follow you around for the last one day, and you're about to reveal something horrible and shameful. Yeah. Um, or do you believe in the possibility? Of course, yes, yes, of course I believe in God. Yeah, yes, I do believe in God. Um, um, I think that much of what I've said this evening I could have said independently of believing in God. Now, because some of the language might be slightly different, right? So the term of spirituality, you know, the talk of spirit or talk of the soul might have to be sort of interpreted slightly differently. Um, but I would say that it's not so much that as it were, it's a belief in God that informs 
these interests and concerns. It's rather that these interests and concerns actually point towards a spiritual reality, right? So is it where, you know, some people think, oh, there's an argument. You know, some people think the argument from evil, I mean, those who've had some kind of philosophical interest or education will be familiar with the arguments from evil. These are meant to be the idea that there can't be a God because if there was a God, there wouldn't be evil in the world. But actually, if you think about, I mean, this is very quick, I know, but if you think about evil in various ways, this can actually lead you to God, right? That is the, the deepest understanding of what's going on here doesn't have a natural explanation, right? That there's something, there's a level, of, and I'm not talking just about the kind of spooky stuff, right? I'm actually talking about these very deep aspects of human nature, right? There's something in us that shouldn't be there or there's something in us that needs to be made better, and we're very limited in what we can do about that. So, you know, in, a, in uh, the Confessions, I mentioned Augustine earlier on, but in the Confessions, Augustine you know, famously, in one chapter, says, you know, you made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they come to rest in you. And I think what he's diagnosing there is, in a sense, a kind of Blattian thought, or Blatty is an Augustinian thought, which is there's a kind of thrashing about a restlessness in us that produces all of this mess and damage and such like. And it's because there's something we're looking for that we can't provide for ourselves, right? That, and that only something like God could be the answer to this. So, in answer, in answer to your question, yes, yeah. Okay. Do you have a follow? Do you have a follow-up? Super quick follow-up. Yeah, yeah. Go on. I'm not gonna let you go that easy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you believe in a? I guess a classification of God or historical pointing to which name that God would be living under, or do you believe in more of an agnostic way that? No, I I I, I um, a have a broadly traditional view of these matters. Yeah, I mean, no, I'm a I'm a Christian, so I believe that um, Jesus Christ is God made incarnate, um, the promised Messiah. Um, now, having said that, I mean, these are just kind of forms of words in a sense. Um, I do think that, you know, if people are thinking about how plausible is religious belief, how might one justify religious claims and so on, I am, you know, philosophers look for arguments for the existence of God of a fairly familiar sort and kind of metaphysical arguments and so on. I am actually quite interested in um, this route to God, right? The good, <laughs> the route from the recognition of one's brokenness and one's very limited capacity to do much about that. So it's as we're recognizing that, you know, it's in us to be better, but actually our capacity to make ourselves better is very limited. So why is it in us to be better? And how can we be made, made better if we, we, even if we can't make ourselves better? maybe points to the idea that there's something, there's a relationship there that we're seeking that has as its source, a creative source and a redemptive source in God and so on. But yeah, so that's where I'm. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, oh, my, yeah. yeah, my question had to do with the ranking of things. So as you know, Aquinas and others like to say, well, this sin is worse from that sin, and yeah. I'll explain why. So if you compare the corruption of the entertainment industry with the corruption in uh, political yeah. life, with corruption in academic life, how would you rate these? Which is the most corrupt? <laughs> why? Well, I don't think that I would want to rank them in that way. I mean, I think my, my point is more in a sense that 
you know, when these sort of scandals are revealed and such like, when these facts are revealed, which then cause scandal, um, what we're seeing is not something peculiar to this department of life or this way of this profession or this practice or something of that sort. What we're discovering is something that is true of human beings in general. So these same sort of, if you take those kind of three elements, you know, the darkness of the intellect, the disturbance of the passions, the resolution of the will, these show themselves all over the place, right? But one manifestation of the darkness, of the, uh, the failure to understand, is not just that we don't see things as they are, which is the case, right? But we don't see ourselves as we are. It's not just as well the view out the window is murky because the window is dirty in some sense, or whatever it may be, or because our eyesight is limited. It's actually that we don't even understand ourselves very well. Now, just take that aspect of these things. That's manifest all over the place, right? Um, now, academic life. <laughs> well, we're both employed, aren't we, but in, these, in this sphere. But, um, I mean, academic life is rife with self-deception. Um, I mean, I'm sure this is of limited interest to others in the room, but I mean, one of the things that's most conspicuous about academic life today is it's large, I know about largely, but it, there is a very significant population of it, of people who ought not to be there, right? Um, people of, of a kind who could only, you know, you could only have a certain kind of ability to get a PhD, but it's entirely compatible with having a PhD that you have literally nothing to contribute to the discussion, right? Um, and, the, you know, the academic life is massively overpopulated. Uh, there are too many academics. Um, and that has produced a kind of corruption of, of intellectual life. And I can just illustrate it very simply. It's a market phenomenon. I mean, I, I um, am half a social conservative and half a Marxist, so you're going to get the Marxist side now, right? Which is that... Um, if you analyze the, 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 the means and conditions of production, exchange, and control, then what, and this is a very good analysis of, of academic life, right? So what happens in academic life? I should, this will happen in the, in the creative arts as well. Okay. So if you are genuinely creatively talented, then you can create an audience for what you, what, what you do. If you have some talent, but more likely just have a desire to be among the talented people or to work in a creative profession and so on, but you don't have that much talent, what you have to do is to find a product that's differentiated from the existing products, okay? So just think of it in terms of, I don't know, pizza manufacturer or something of that sort, right? The, market, the pizza market is saturated. So what are you going to do? You're either going to have to make a better pizza of a kind that's already being manufactured, or you're going to have to make a different kind of pizza, all right? So you're going to start making chocolate pizzas or ice cream pizzas, or whatever it is, right? Now, that's what academics are doing, right? Academics are, are producing dissertations of a kind that just are of no interest, no serious interest to anybody, right? But it's a way of differentiating yourself in the marketplace. And that's true within the arts as well. Not only, I mean, we could just, you know, pluralize this, right? That, so, um, that, and that involves very serious self-deception. To genuinely believe that you're making a contribution to intellectual life, when all, all that you're really doing is, is trying to exploit a niche in the market to find a place for yourself, is a self-corrupting activity. And it, then it, it, in order to kind of you know, sustain yourself in that illusion, you have to become kind of bold and you know, fill your figure, as it were, and become aggressive about this and, you know, 
knock down other people in one thing or another. So academic life is, is profoundly corrupt in these ways. Um, but at the heart of this, I would go back to the idea that a darkening of the intellect, a disturbance of the passions, <laughs> and a resolution of the will. So I don't know if that's an answer, but it's an observation at any rate. Yeah. So we need time for a few more questions. Uh, we have one, two here, and one, two at the back there. So we'll take them two at a time. If they can be brief, we can hopefully get all four. He's being polite. Really what he means is if my answers can be brief, we'll be more. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in hearing you speak tonight, I was more so prone to asking you, so how does one order the disorder in their mind? Other than going through the Ignatian spiritual yes. exercises, right? Yeah. And then also, um, not to have multiple part questions, but That's what I'm doing. Um, my next question would be, we as humans are always obviously flawed, it comes from original sin. In this industry, it impacts social culture, yeah. but it's also guided by social, yeah. social culture. The people that make what we are seeing yeah. are obviously disordered. How do we move forward with the self-examination and the correction Good. of that? Okay. See? Yeah, that's, uh, yeah no, I've got the answer. That's all right. Don't worry. <laughs> it only takes about 30 seconds. No. All right. So with regard to the first of those, um, so this was about the spiritual side of things, right? Putting, trying to get order back in to our lives, yes. And then the second thing, but yeah. So uh, on the first of these, um, there's this French spiritual writer of the 17th century called Jean-Pierre de Cassade. And he, well, he didn't write a book. He wrote a series of letters. These were advisory letters to visitation nuns in Nancy, in a convent in Nancy. He was their kind of spiritual director. And letters would, uh, issues would be raised and he would respond to them. And about 100 years after his death, these letters were gathered together and then published. And they were published under the title, um, uh, which, as I say, I mean, he never wrote a book, and so he didn't conceive of this title. But anyway, the, the title under which they were published is Self-Abandonment to Divine Providence. Self-Abandonment to Divine Providence. And in the course of these letters, um, or this text, as it could get put together as a book, there's a phrase recurs, which I think is a magnificent phrase, which is the sacrament of the present moment. The sacrament of the present moment. And why do I think the spirituality would be something like this? Well, look, you know, I, I, you get a version of this actually in Newman's hymn, Lead Kindly Light Amidst the Encircling Gloom, Lead, uh, Lead Thou Me On, is that, you know, don't worry about the larger scheme of things, you know. I mean, not that there aren't things to worry about, but there's not much that any individual can do about that, right? But do address yourself to what comes your way in the moment. Now, you know, that's not to say that every moment is kind of pregnant with significance, right? There'll be a lot of just mundane stuff in life. But look out each day for that moment or moments that may be your vocation. So this is not your vocation in the sense of giving your life over to some particular you know, project or something of that sort. This is just the idea of, in one sense, a very simple, but in another way, a very profound, kind of vocation, which is to do in the day ahead that which is a response to the sacrament of the present moment, what's given to you at some moment in the course of the day. Uh, and that seems, to just, I mean, personally, that seems to me a more viable uh, 
spirituality, for the circumstances that we inhabit, than the idea of going off and kind of subjecting yourself to years of spiritual discipline and one thing and another. For most of us, that's not a possibility, right? We're just trying to manage, as it were. But being alert to what might come your day, come your way in the course of the day, um, and the sense of the sacrament, the givenness, the blessedness of the of the, the of that moment. And sorry, the second part was about what can we do about the wider. What was it again? Sorry, the second part. Um, essentially, fixing currently what's happening within the industry. Well, uh, here I think that. Or is it like just? No, I mean, look, the th is it what? Sorry, what was the last bit I missed there? Go on. Okay, but the well, I think I got the idea. Um, so here's the thing. Um, so the first five years of my uh, higher education were spent in art school, and I then taught art, and I taught in an architecture school, and so on. So although I'm a philosopher, that's my kind of second career. Um, and uh, one thing that um, you learn is that um, how things get better is by individuals doing good things and other people recognizing that, right? So for example, when an art form or an art genre or more generally here, uh, uh, say the film industry, goes wrong, there's no broad spectrum solution to that. There's nothing, there are no measures that one can take are going to put that right in general terms. That's why I think all this talk about, you know, how we're going to change things and change the culture is just ridiculous. Yeah. Precisely, yeah. Um, <laughs> but what I think one can do is just give witness, give example, right? And that will be noticed at some point. Now, it's because there's a lot, I don't mean, you know, this isn't some kind of, you know, la la land kind of story here. Right, it's going to pay, oh, everybody sort of turns around and says, isn't that beautiful? But, you know, unless people do that, there isn't going to be change. So change will only come through example. And uh, that's how it tends to happen, right? I mean, it's just that, you know, for the most of us, what we do will be very limited, but there will be, if we keep going, somebody will come along at some point who couldn't have done what they are going to do if we hadn't been doing our little bit, just keeping this sort of thing going. They'll come along and they'll do something wonderful. And other people will think that that's better than what we've done. And it's obviously better. I mean, it sort of has integrity and things of that sort. And that, that, that's the sort of thing that produces change. But change, I think, comes in that sense from below. I mean, it doesn't come from above. Okay, so we'll take yeah. three questions here and then finish with Jordan. So you mentioned a few times about the medicalization mm. of evil. And I'm curious yeah. how you recognize reconcile the medicalization of evil with uh, the reality of pe uh, you know, culpability and um, reality of culpable for evil versus like, um, real psychological problems? Oh, I see. Yeah, no, that's good. Good, good question. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's a deep question because I think it's, can be quite a, a difficult matter to distinguish between psychopathologies uh, and moral and spiritual disorders. Um, and that's, I mean, here I would tread very carefully. Well, what I mean by that is um, one can draw general distinctions, but applying them in particular cases takes real discernment. So uh, this is a kind of slightly whimsical example, but the English novelist Evelyn Waugh, who is, 
understandably, you know, many Catholic writers are very interested in war, cause, sorry, many Catholics, because he was a Catholic writer and so on. Evelyn Waugh was a thoroughly unpleasant man, thoroughly unpleasant, uh, who ruined the lives of his children. He was a thoroughly nasty piece of work. Uh, I knew one of his children, Oberon Waugh, and Oberon, you know, had very difficult life, uh, and, and certainly had been made difficult by his father. Here's one of the charms of Evelyn Waugh. In the period just after the Second World War, bananas were very difficult to obtain in Britain because obviously for you know, the shipping that stuff around and so on. Evelyn Waugh brought his children to the table to show them the glory of a banana and unpeeled it and ate it before them. <laughs> Wasn't that nice? <laughs> anyway, uh, Evelyn Waugh wrote a book called The Ordeal of Gilbert Pinfold. I don't know if anybody knows this book, but it's a very interesting book. Waugh was an insomniac, and he, um, he, in the course of the night, he, he, had, he had a sort of Egyptian cotton, waxed Egyptian cotton uh, pillow slips, right, just so they were on a completely smooth surface. And he would shave two or three times in the course of the night, as a result of which he would have this awful, you know, kind of irritation and such like. Because even the slightest, you know, disruption would kind of wake him up and so on. So he had to have thought of this, and he was very difficult. Anyway, he went on, um, he, he did articles for a British newspaper, travelogue kind of things, and he'd been commissioned to go on some voyage to the near Middle East, and I don't know whether we're going to go beyond that. But anyway, he went to his doctor and he said, um, look, I'm going to be away for three or four months. I need a sleeping draft, because his doctor knew that he had these difficulties sleeping with insomnia and so on. So the guy gave him basically laudanum, and he said, well, you know, I'm going to be away for three or four months, so could you give me a you know, three or four months supply, a third of the year supply? So the chap said, well, you know, it's kind of... And he said, well, I have to be concentrated because I don't want to be taking some vast quantities of things. So anyway, he took, a, he took three or four months supply, concentrated supply of laudanum, and he would just drink it as a cocktail at night with brandy. Anyway, so in the course of this, he went mad, Evelyn Waugh, and uh, he... Um, uh, he, by the time they got to Cairo, it was clear that he was completely off his head. And, uh, but he believed he was demonically possessed. This is the point of the story. So he, um, he, he, his wife, uh, he insisted that his wife uh, send a telegram back to London that his spiritual director, a Jesuit called Philip Caraman, whom I knew, and this is how I know the story, because Philip told me this story. He didn't tell me any stories of the confessional, so don't worry about that. <laughs> but he did tell me this story. So he said that um, uh, Waugh's wife sent this telegram, said Evelyn's off his head and so on, but he thinks he's demonically possessed. He, he wants you to exercise him and such like. Uh, you know, be prepared. And so, uh, and she said, he wants you to take rooms at Claridge's. Claridge's is a very expensive London hotel, and to perform the exorcism there. Anyway, they turn up in one thing or another. And uh, in the interim, um, Caraman had just gone and got a psychiatrist, a clinical psychologist, actually, and just said, you know, look, I'm sorry, I'm just not going to deal with this. You're obviously crazy. Now, that was a relatively easy case, right? But clinical psychology is an extremely interesting and delicate field. And I think that, I'm, as it happened, I'm quite interested in it. In fact, I've once played a role in trying to design a clinical psychology PhD, which, for various reasons, at the end of the day, didn't get instantiated. But um, it is, psychopathology is a very complex field. And I, I mean, if this is the point of your question, I think one has to be very careful about not 
confusing spiritual conditions for clinical psychological conditions, but also not excusing spiritual conditions by treating them as if they were simply psychopathologies or clinical subjects for clinical psychology. So it's a very good question, and there's no general answer that it has to be judged in the context of the particular. And that's why the best clinical psychologists are people of enormous experience and real discernment who can try to make a judgment as to what's going on here. But I think it's a, it was, it's a danger to spiritualize psychopathology, and it's also, I mean, to see people as evil who are actually just disordered, but it's also, and this is more the thing that I'm concerned with, important not to see people as merely psychologically disturbed who are actually evil, or if you don't like the word evil, but, you know, corrupt in various ways. And I think that's what's going on. So when people start, you know, uh, Kevin Spacey and also uh, Einstein, you know, signing themselves into these kind of clinics and such like, that's an attempt to try to escape moral responsibility by representing yourself as in the grip of a sort of psycho psychological condition. Right, do we have time for, yeah, good. I mean, Lex Pro works great for me. So. Say again, sorry? Lex Pro works great for Yes, me. yes, okay, girl. <laughs> <laughs> but um, to touch on a, an answer you gave earlier, I'm curious what, if you could elaborate more on what you think about the whole um, superhero phenomenon yeah. in the movie industry. Deeply um, troubling is what I think. <laughs> I'm curious because from, I, I have a background in history, right. and my understanding was like Captain America was an answer for Americans yeah. to Hitler yeah. and, and Nazi regimes. So I'm yeah. really curious as to what well, your thoughts are. Yeah. Look, I'm not against mythic portrayals. Uh, look, what myths do is, is exaggerate aspects of Sorry, what they do in body and, and, carry, and individual characters, I mean, are features of, of the human situation more generally. Or, I mean, the human situation as it obtains in a particular time, in a particular circumstance. And so I'm, I've no trouble with that, right? The idea of, of idealization, ide, not idealization in the sense of flawless representation, because often these aren't, by the way, flawless. I mean, often these characters will have certain kinds of flaws. Um, but uh, what I th so so for, uh, I'm not worried about myth making, right? The question is, what is myth making in the service of, right? What is the interest of? Now, in the United States right now, uh, and and you know, uh, I'm spending half my day checking up on the state of the Brexit negotiations in London. So we have our problems as well. Um, I mean, literally, it's going on every day right now. But the. Uh, so, but I'm, you know, I'm not, this is not really, I'm not denigrating the United States, it's just, you know, that's the example, that's where I am right now. I think that this is a, oh, gosh, <laughs> I think America's lost its way, right? I think it's lost a sense of its point and purpose. Um, one of the things about America, the United States, that I find immensely attractive, well, I, I, well a couple of things, actually. First of all, Europe is exhausted. Just ex The old world is exhausted, and it's turning to cynicism and bitterness and various other things and so on. It's resentful. It has no ideas. It doesn't know where to go. It's troubled by its past. It sees no future. I mean, it's just, okay... One thing about the United States is very attractive to me and always has been. I mean, this, I've been coming to the United States for 30 years. I've, my first engagement was I position at the University of Pittsburgh, and then I've had positions at Georgetown University, University of Notre Dame, and now Baylor University in Texas. And um, I love it, right? And one of the reasons I like it is, first of all, it's a youthful culture. You can still feel that. It's so close to its foundation. And the idealism of America is enormously attractive, the Constitution and so on. 
That's why I find very, very troubling the current trends to reject the idealism of America and to see that as itself as a kind of, you know, um, a kind of bad faith uh, presentation of a myth in the interests of power or sectional interests and so on. But um, I think this superhero stuff is partly nostalgic. I think it's escapist. I think it represents an unwillingness to actually, because of an incapacity to know how to, deal with the current fragmented, disassociated state of America. And a loss of the kind of idealism that was, has characterized America throughout its history, I think, and, and very nobly so and very inspirationally so. so. You know, when de Tocqueville, this French aristocrat, came to the United States for the purpose, funded by the French government, to look into the way in which the United States treated uh, prisoners, right? Penal reform was his interest. He wasn't, you know, people don't know, de Tocqueville was not here very long. And then he writes this enormously important work, Democracy in America. And it's a, you know, an enduringly insightful view of America and what America represented. And it's got all sorts of things that I think are extremely interesting. But de Tocqueville's America was true up until, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago. America is rapidly changing in ways that are not to the good. So I'm inclined to think that this superhero stuff is partly, consciously or otherwise, an attempt to write another narrative, a narrative that doesn't have to have a kind of deeper attachment to American values, American society, American community, and so on, is about you know much more simpler, fantastical, um, not really imaginative, I mean, not imaginative in the sense that I was concerned with that, not explorations of reality, but just escapes from reality. So that's my criticism of it, I'm afraid. Thank you. So, uh, Star Wars is again another. Oh, yes, Star Wars. I, I didn't mention Star Wars. It's, quite right. it's, it's coming out in a couple yeah. weeks. And um, mm. what what is it about? Yeah. Is there an intrinsically shallow aspect to this dualist view of good and evil? There, I mean, we get a clear yeah. picture of good and evil in Star Wars and yes. in some of these um, comic book movies as well. Um, what do you make of that? And, and is it, does it compare to the kind of dualism that Augustine himself and Manichaeism that Augustine himself battled with? Good, yeah. So, excellent questions, by the way. Congratulations on the questions. <laughs> they really are very good questions. I, Sometimes one gives talks and people say things like, you know, what's your favorite color or something like that. <laughs> I've had none of the what's your favorite color questions, right? So uh, it's a very good question. Um, so I, I, you know, and forgive what might seem the glibness of my reply, but just for reasons of time, okay. So I think it's very important. That, that actually, in a way, this goes back to the lady's gone now, but this is, it's, there's some connections to what I'm about to say now and what, you, the, what I said in response to the question. Well, no, the lady was asking about clinical psychology and disorder. That wasn't you, was it? Yeah. So I think it's extremely important to recognize that there is a difference between spiritual corruption and psychological disorder, but also to recognize that it's not always easy to tell which is which, right? So there is a, there is a serious difference but not always, it's not a trivial matter to tell what's going on in a given human life, in a given circumstance, and so on. Now, likewise, I think it's extremely important to recognize there is a difference between good and evil. Right, and it's a sharp and clear difference. But I also recognize that the entanglements and the complexities of human life and human motivation and so on mean that it's very, very rare <laughs> to find that motives aren't mixed in these various ways, okay? So, um, 
I think that actually separating out these aspects and features... So in one sense, I am dualistic about these things. That's to say, I mean, I think there is good and I think there is evil. But I'm not simple-minded about this, right? Because the, the, because the, the, the genius of human beings is their capacity to tell themselves stories of a justificatory sort, right? And so, although the roots of action or thought uh, may be very clear, by the time they actually have worked, by the time something has grown out of that roof, it's become, root, it's become entangled with all aspects of psychology and so on. And then it can be quite difficult to discern what's going on here. Right? It's complex to discern. But no, I do think it's important not to be, not to draw the conclusion from the fact that it can be difficult to distinguish these things to think there isn't a distinction to be drawn. Right? So it can be difficult to separate these out, but it doesn't mean there isn't a distinction. So, for example, you know, and this is an analogy, right? So there are indefinitely many shades of purple. It doesn't mean there aren't clear cases of blue and clear cases of red, right? So purple is a kind of combination of blue and red, and there, there can be shades where it's rather difficult to discern whether this is, you know, a bluish purple or a reddish purple or where this is in relation to blue and so on. But it doesn't follow from the fact that some cases are difficult to discriminate, that there aren't clear cases on either side. And so I would say that, you know, it's important to have that sense that there really is, there is good, evil, there is evil, even in circumstances in which it can be people's motivations may be complex, may be difficult to discern, may be difficult to diagnose and so on. But that's why I come back to the idea that self-knowledge is the first condition necessary for self-rectification. You know, you first of all have to try to work out what's going on in your heart, as it were, in your will, in your passions, in your motivations. And that's not always easy to do, because we, are we have a tremendous facility for telling stories that are protective of what's actually going on inside us. And we tell those stories for us. I mean, we tell those stories because we want to maintain relations with people who, you know, whose company we value and so on, but also because it can be very difficult to actually face the reality about yourself. You know, and so we tell stories to protect ourselves. I don't know if that's in any way helping, but I'm afraid that's... It's a complicated business, being alive. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put your hands together for John Holland. <laughs>